You cannot step twice into the same rivers, for fresh waters are ever flowing in upon you. Heraclitus of Ephesus. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to welcome everyone this week. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode if you've been listening, or if you're joining me for the first time, again, welcome. Um... We'll get into the episode fairly quickly, but I did just want to say welcome to live listening, I guess, for our YouTube uh, people. Uh, This episode is the first one that's going to be up at the same time uh, as my podcast feed. So, um, and if you are listening on those other feeds, feel free to listen there now. It's wherever you prefer. Uh, and wherever you are listening to, uh, please uh, subscribe, uh, send a review or a message, however you'd like. Now, let's get into the, I guess, the meat of this episode. Now, uh, we finished up the Tibetan Plateau last week, and we will now be moving into mainland Southeast Asia, or it is sometimes referred to as the Indochinese Peninsula. Uh, and I would like to start with that talk or with a discussion about terminology um and i'm not someone who tries to police speech and say you shouldn't use terms and i would never you know call anyone out for using it and claim they're you know racist or imperialist etc what have you um but i am surprised that there hasn't been a push a push to kind of come up with a new term uh to kind of describe this region um of course there's nothing wrong with southeast asia um the region is to the south and east of the continent (laughs) Uh, but you know that also includes parts of um, Indonesia as well uh, which is uh, you know uh, island and not part of uh, the peninsula so it's a little bit bigger region Uh, but Indochina I feel like that term you know it's it is kind of odd that there's been no pushback to to change it um the region is, you know, balanced between India and China, uh, you know, and has seen a lot of influence from both of these, you know, regions at different times and even during the same periods. Um, but I feel like it kind of trivializes the region's internal history, which, you know, had its own catalysts and forces, you know, that, that drove the peoples and states in the region. And it can also be interpreted, I feel like, by some that the people never exerted their own influences back into China and India or, you know, their their island-dwelling neighbors in the rest of Southeast Asia. So uh, if anyone is aware of any kind of scholarship that, you know, proposes an alternative name to it, let me know. I actually tried to kind of come up with a maybe a better term for the mainland portion of Southeast Asia, but I really couldn't come up with anything... That kind of stood out. Um, and part of that is that the region itself, you know, is home to a lot of different uh, diverse groups. But, you know, I felt like any term, you know, from any of them would kind of, you know, get pushed back from some of those other groups. Uh, but uh, I guess to start with, uh, I guess, getting focused, as it were, um, we're going to talk about how mainland Southeast Asia is separated from uh, South Asia. 
and this is it's separated by what is known as the South Indo-Burman Range. Um, this is the boring technical name for the mountains. Um, the Southeast Asian peoples that live in and around them call them the Rakhine Yoma, and I apologize for that pronunciation. It's very hard to get like a, a standardized pronunciation guide for Rakhine or Burmese. Now, the name comes from uh, the Rakhine people who live in the in the mountains. Excuse me, and uh, Yoma, which is uh, I believe a Burmese word for mountains in at least some of the Burmese Burmese dialects. Um, and I and. Interestingly, when the word is written in the Burmese script and translated into English, um, at least via Google, uh, Yoma is rendered as mother. So there is, I guess, a way you could read it or interpret it them as being the the mother of the Rakhine. Uh, the most common name, though, you'll find for them in English is the Arakan Mountains. Uh, this is derived from the Sanskrit word Rakasha. Uh, this is a type of um, spirit or giant or demigod that shows up in Hindu as well as Jain and Buddhist cosmology. Um, uh, and this term is the basis for several place names. Um, I think uh, technically speaking, uh, there is some thought that even Lanka, as in Sri Lanka, has its some, some origin could be interpreted as being from um, Rakasha as well. Uh, in fact, I think in some of the Hindu stories, um, uh, Rama fights a Rakasha ruler by the name of Ravana, uh, and uh, that takes place on the island of Lanka. So, of course... Ravana being a Rakasha lord would rule over a land filled with uh, Rakasha. Uh, now, also, the Andaman Islands are actually part of this mountain chain. Uh, so they, you know, the very tip, or I guess southern portion of the, of the mountains are covered by the ocean. And that kind of brings me to another point I kind of wanted to touch on. Um, while most likely the um, the sea levels are very similar to what they are today, there are some theories that uh, parts of Southeast Asia, at least when it comes to the islands, maybe the water level is not 100% what it is today. It may still be a little bit lower, um, which... You know, it was very low when humans first got to the Andamans, uh, so it may not have been quite as long of a, of a boat journey. Um, but I think by the very end of our episode, 6,000 BC, that is the absolute latest date that uh, would be the case of the water levels meeting modern uh, standards, I guess, or modern boundaries. Uh, so... It's probably close to what it is now at the very start of our time period, but even if it's not, by the end of what we're talking about, it is going to be the modern uh, levels. Now, uh, f 
for the rest of peninsular Southeast Asia. Uh, it is separated from East Asia, or what is now modern-day China, uh, by the far eastern portion of the Tibetan Plateau, the Shan Highlands, uh, the Kohan Lhasan Mountains, and the Hoang Lian San Mountains. And that's moving from west to east. Now, we talked about the Tibetan Highlands last time, so uh, or the Tibetan Plateau, excuse me. Um, so I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but uh, the Shan Highlands is a mountainous region that today covers parts of um, modern China, Burma, or is also known as Myanmar. And if you're not aware, the name changed from Burma to Myanmar in, I think it was like, 88 or 89 uh, 1988 or 1989 some people do not recognize that name change because it happened after the democratic government was overthrown in a military coup and there are those that claim that you know the military does not have the right to change their name without you know popular democratic support and all this other stuff um, and I'm going to use the names interchangeably uh, depending on my source um but I do think, in some cases, the primary language is still considered Burmese, um, though there are other ethnic groups. Uh, also, Thailand as portions uh, covered by the Shan Highlands as well. And these, uh, these are a huge number of peaks and narrow valleys, um, and a number of uh, major rivers, headwaters in Southeast Asia run down from these mountains. Uh, the name Shan is the Burmese term for the Thai people. Um, and there are different, I guess, um, branches of Thai groups, like different uh, different um, Thai language groups or language, um, I, I guess, families. Um, there's like North Thai and like Central Thai. And while most of them live in Thailand, there are still some that live in Burma and in China, as well as I think Laos as well. And speaking of Laos, uh, the Kohan La San Mountains is the range that forms uh, the shared modern day border of China, Vietnam, and Laos. Um, the Hoan Lian San, uh, San Mountain Range helps the, uh, form the borders between China and Vietnam. Now, I couldn't find the Vietnamese etymological breakdown of these names uh, but the Mandarin Chinese name for the um, uh, the excuse me for the Kohan Lasan Mountains is Shixing um, Dashan uh, which means 10 story or tier uh, sorry 10 story or 10 layered mountain Now, uh, to talk about, um, I guess, who is living in this region. Um, once more organized groups or centralized states form, they're able to kind of turn these barriers into sieves, uh, controlling you know, travel and commerce, all that kind of stuff. But at our timeline of 8,000 to 6,000 BC, those are a distant dream. They're, they're far in the future. So instead, these mountains and their passes, while difficult to travel, were open. 
um, you know, and saw, you know, a number of peoples migrate through and inside the region. Um, one of the major draws of this part of the world uh, was the Irrawaddy, or Ayera, excuse me, Ayerawadi River and its constituent branches. Uh, now, this name comes from the Pali word um, Aravadi, uh, which means, uh, which was a very important language um, in the spread of Buddhism. And it, it was used in parts of South and Southeast, Southeast Asia. Uh, it means astoundingly rich or filled with wealth. And some in, older English sources refer to uh, it as the Pegu River uh, because of uh, the capital of a kingdom in the region or what is now modern day uh, Myanmar or Burma. Um, this is very confusing as there is an actual Pegu River that is part of the Yangon River, which is another river in the region. Um, towards the north and the west of the Irrawaddy and towards the Rakhine Yoma uh, is a drier kind of plain uh, due to the mountain's um, uh, western faces kind of catching and breaking up the monsoon. So the western mountains, um, they do not, they're not quite as lush or as verdant as the rest of uh, the country. But as you go south, the land becomes greener and more fertile, and the Irrawaddy meets other rivers, uh, including the Yangon, uh, that empties out into the Andaman Sea, uh, which is kind of the uh, eastern half of the Bay of Bengal. And uh, of course, this is a very, um, you know, important uh, agricultural region um, later and will be the sites of several different kingdoms. Now, at our current time frame of 8,000 to 6,000 BC, um, we get kind of um, a transitional period. Um, humans, of course, or Homo sapiens, have at least um, been living in the region for quite a while. Of course, um, Homo erectus preceded them, and then there were probably branches of Denisovans that lived in parts of Southeast Asia. And the early uh, Homo sapien migrations through the region, of course, uh, there was some level of intermixing between the early Homo sapiens and the whatever branch of Denisovan was living in the region. And uh, again, I think I mentioned this, oh, quite a while ago, I think the end of our, towards the end of our first season, um, there are some theori theories that say that, um, that the Denisovans may have even lasted longer than we're aware of, um, that they may have kind of held out a little bit longer than we have evidence for. Kind of some of the problems that we talked about in the Bengali, uh, river basin, uh, you know, with, uh, the acidic soil and the humidity, uh, that kind of affects most of Southeast Asia as well. So it's kind of hard to find a lot of human material from this time frame. So we, we've been very lucky in a few different places. Um, now, uh, due to the military takeover of Myanmar or Burma, whatever you want to refer to it as, 
it's not always easy to do a lot of studies in the region, not because they don't want to establish like a firm identity uh, for their people. They just don't trust uh, outsiders coming in and, you know, they like to keep a tight level of information control. So it's not easy to do kind of studies of this region. Um, and Myanmar, you know, they have a lot of internal censorship and control so it's not easy to do a whole lot of studying however um, you do have some archaeological sites that have been discovered um, <clears throat> one of these is um, sorry I lost my place in my notes give me just one second ah, is the Badalin caves which is um, What's in the kind of the southern uh, Shan parts of uh, Myanmar, which uh, if I guess if you were to kind of look at it in the map, um, it's kind of almost in the center of the country itself in the hills, though, in the foothills. It's not uh, it's not directly on a river, uh, but they have found tools going back, I believe, to. Uh, 65,000 years ago. Um, so, again, very early dating. And you you do run into that place that they were kind of a, able to see how the technology and tools developed over time. Um, they developed um, flaked stone tools around 25,000 years ago. And this remains in use even to later periods, even to, I believe, the historical period in the region. Although, obviously, as time goes on, the kind of, um, the use of the cave for stone material becomes much less important. Um, you no longer, you, you lose traces of the stone or tool production aspect of the cave, but you do continue to see it used for spiritual purposes. There are a lot of uh, red ochre paintings in these caves. Um, things like wild, um, um, uh, I think they're goats, or also like these large, uh, I forget the term for them, but um, almost boars and things like that. So th there's, a, there's a large, like, um, collection of early art in the region um, there's also kind of um, non-representative designs they have like they have kind of gouged out uh, divots in the stone that were covered with red ochre uh, you can also see areas that had been kind of carved out and then painted over almost with a green or maybe something that has um, maybe oxidized into a green. It's very possible it could have been red. Uh, and it this remains in use even, again, into the historical period. There are a number of these um, caverns that you'll eventually see a bunch of uh, Buddhist uh, stupas um, constructed in or near these. So these are, you know, very early, these are lived in sites. These are places where people are camping and using to create uh, not just art, but tools and things like that. But eventually, you know, once you transition from stone tools, 
the caves still remain important for spiritual uh, and religious reasons. So, you know, it's very, uh, very ancient, what we're talking about. Excuse me. <clears throat> now, uh, as I said, uh, at the 8000 BC mark, we don't... Um, we're still not sure about sea levels, but as you get closer to the 7000 BC mark, so about a thousand years in this region, you see a number of more settlements show up in the archaeological record. Uh, of course, you have the um, the Podolin Caves in the Shan States, but you also see um, sites show up more along... Um, the coastal regions. Uh, I believe uh, there are some in what is known as the Mon State and the Tananthai region. Uh, and these are both, um, if you look at a map of modern uh, Burma, these are that little narrow peninsula that Burma shares with um, Thailand. Uh, and basically, Burma controls the sea access there. And these are both states that are right where that peninsula begins to form and narrows out. So um, these are areas that you also see human habitation. Uh, and of course, the Irrawaddy River, tons of sites there, and then uh, there are some other smaller rivers that feed into uh, the Irrawaddy that sees habitation as well. And again, these numbers increase dramatically uh, after um, the 7,000 7, BC is when these really pick up. Um, the Badalin Caves, I believe, they stopped being used for at least the, the latest tools they found dated there, where it still seems like it was being used as a living location, is about 3,000 years before our current time period. But, again, it's still probably being used for religious purposes to some extent or another. And um, this transitional period where you see more of these sites pop up, this is known as, um, I believe, in the Anyathian period. Uh, and this is when you see plants and animals and polished stone bladelets appear in Burma. Um, so, uh, and these are all sites that show up in places that are very fertile. There's a lot of rain, there's a lot of water sources, um, but you don't see, there's no evidence of agriculture yet. Um, so they're, they're probably in that kind of pre-period where they're eating all these wild foods and, uh, you know, vegetables and fruits. Um, and then, of course, hunting. Uh, so they're still hunters and gatherers, uh, but they are, you know, early in the domestication process for a couple of things there. Uh, very possibly uh, red jungle fowl, which are the ancestors of modern chickens. Um, and I'm going to talk about that a lot in our next domestication episode. Uh, about where chickens were first domesticated, what the theories are, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so 7,000 BC, you begin to see uh, all these, uh, an explosion in a number of sites. 
uh, and then this continues. This continues well into the future. Um, now, um, in terms of who the people are living there, so um, I talked about how Myanmar has, I've, I've mentioned three groups, the Burmese, the Rakhine, and uh, the Thai people. Um, now, at our time frame, we really don't know too much about who's living there. Uh, this is a period that, again, you're seeing um, an increase of sites, and this is believed to have been caused by uh, people migrating into the region, like a, a larger number of people. Um, now, DNA evidence and testing is a little scant uh, for this region uh, in terms of like timing things to this period. Um, but I think it's safe to say that um, all of these groups have ancestry that can be traced to these first Homo sapien um, uh, migrants into the region. Uh, so they've, they've all been living there. Um, but there is evidence that there is some type of division between all of them. And that division may be taking shape at our current period of time. Um, and one of the things that kind of leads into this theory is uh, language. In Southeast Asia, there are a large number of languages being spoken uh, today. Uh, but these can largely be traced to kind of four larger families. Uh, in Burma uh, and or Myanmar, uh, you have, um, of course, Burmese is the primary language uh, spoken, but this is part of what is known as the Tibeto-Burman language family. Um, and this is also part of the... Uh, I guess the Tibeto uh, Cynic languages, uh, of course, which Chinese is the other primary branch. Uh, but there are tons of other families in the Tibeto Burton, uh, Burman branch, uh, including many in Burma. Uh, and we'll go into that in a lot more detail later. Uh, but as well as the Tibeto Burman, you have um, the Austroasiatic languages. Uh, these are mostly spoken in um, uh, Cambodia, uh, parts of Vietnam, Laos, uh, Thailand as well. As I think there's also some even in Indonesia and some as far away as uh, India and Bangladesh. And then you have Austronesian, which uh, this is mostly kind of on the um, the islands of Southeast Asia, as well as parts of, uh, I believe, uh, the Philippines, um, New Zealand, uh, and there are other uh, places that are considered Austronesian as well. I believe that Andamanese Islands also have some influence from Austronesian, I believe. Uh, then, of course, you have uh, another kind of large family, which is uh, Kradai or uh, Thai Kadai, depending on uh, your, I guess, your your dialect, uh, which is uh, the, I guess, the ancestral language of, um, of Thai. Um, 
and this is found in Thailand, Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, parts of China. Um, and this is not just the Thai languages, but there are also um, a few other uh, uh, smaller uh, dialects as well. Now, these are all probably, uh, of course, coming from proto-languages that are older, uh, but the I guess the primary branches that I just mentioned are, at the very least, if they're not already in use for a couple of thousand years at this point, they are getting ready to uh, explode and spread out. Um, I'm going to talk about how these uh, are theorized to have spread and how they relate to each other and how they are very much different. Uh, but um, we don't really know which got where first. Uh, there's a lot of theories and a lot of different, um, uh, I guess, arguments <laughs> about how they spread into the region, uh, what the homeland for each of these uh, language families is, or as uh, we discussed uh, in other language topics, the Urheimat, which is that great German word meaning homeland, what the Urheimat is for um, these um, families, uh, various families are. Uh, but uh, rivers play a vital importance to how uh, all these families spread. Uh, I think uh, the Long Kong and the Mekong are parts of um, the reason that the uh, Thai, or I'm sorry, the uh, Austroasiatic language spread, um, but it also definitely helped uh, the Thai language spread. And why these became primary languages if they didn't emerge in these various parts of Southeast Asia uh, is a matter of debate. Uh, it's very possible that these groups were practicing agriculture and they had had that process of adapting to the agricultural lifestyle and diet and that they were seeking out, you know, lands that had, you know, a little bit more space for their groups. Perhaps where they're moving from had become overcrowded. They're not ready to build cities for whatever reason. Um, and they're just finding new places to move into. And they encounter these hunter-gatherer groups who are, you know, they haven't even started the process of agriculture. They've done a little bit of, maybe, uh, domestication of animals. Uh, and they move in, and they quickly outnumber these other groups who either get uh, conquered or assimilated into their sedentary societies. And, of course, um, they would adapt to this uh, language spoken by the more numerous, more, I guess, powerful, for lack of a better term, um, agricultural groups. Now, this is theoretical. We can't say for sure. Um, I'm going to offer some more theories on this. Um, I'm kind of debating how to do this um, because, again, I think most of these languages are not spreading in the region yet, but they're, they're about to be. Uh, probably uh, at the very end of our timeline, 6,000 BC would probably be the earliest that some of these groups would start coming in. Uh, there's very possible that there could have already been trade links uh, to 
these regions uh, from uh, what is now East Asia or what is now China from you know East Asia, the southern part of East Asia, um, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that uh, a lot in our next couple of episodes in Southeast Asia. Um, for now, though, I think um, this is probably a good place to cut the episode. Um, yeah, so for right now, we've basically covered Burma or Myanmar at this part. Um, again, you've got a lot of smaller sites that show up. Um, some of these are so small, they don't even have names. They've just found like, um, you know, tools or things like that. And uh, Southeast Asia doesn't have too many large settlements until later, kind of like uh, the uh, the river basin of uh, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra. This is something that comes about later. This is probably due to the fact that, you know, they're kind of in um, very marshy uh, and uh, tropical rainforest-type areas. Not the best place uh, to, you know, build cities unless you have a good knowledge of um, uh, uh, drainage and... Um, uh, sanitation, that kind of thing, you know, you, you're probably going to deal with a lot of sickness early on. Uh, and there may not have been any need to build larger settlements until later, uh, but possibly due to uh, expansion, expansionary neighbors um, and a need to protect yourself from these, like, quickly expanding groups, uh, that kind of may have caused a press, um, you know, caused a need to establish uh, firmer centralized control either at a tribal or um city level uh but that uh, that is something that we will talk about of course much later um for now though again i think this is a good place to talk about it we'll move into some other parts of southeast asia next week uh, of course thailand is next up and then uh, we'll probably talk about cambodia and laos some as well uh, and we'll go a little bit deeper on those um, kind of uh, language theories. Um, I think once we have a better idea of Southeast Asia as a whole, uh, it might be easier to kind of, or at least uh, mainland Southeast Asia, excuse me, that'll probably be a good place to um, kind of go back and talk about each of these groups uh, and their language families. That might be its own episode, so we might extend our visit to this region a little bit longer. Uh, so that's something I hope you guys look forward to. Um, if you have any questions or feedback, uh, please feel free to send me a message uh, at my email at waradrevpod at gmail.com. Uh, direct message on Twitter, uh, which I'll include the link to my t Twitter account in this week's episode. Uh, or you can comment on any of my YouTube videos. I do read those. Not that I have had many. Um, but I do thank you guys for liking there. And um, please feel free to like and subscribe on whatever service you listen to me on. Um, I did have one piece uh, or one question I had um, <clears throat> come in about um, one thing. And it's nothing too serious. It's not anything related to what we're talking about now or in our prior episodes, but someone had asked me if I had plans to watch um, the Cleopatra show on Netflix. Uh, and no, I, I don't plan on watching um, 
the African Queen's uh, season on Cleopatra. Um, I'd actually watched the first episode of the first season of the show, uh, which is actually about uh, Queen Nzinga, who was a monarch in, in the Congo. She controlled a couple of kingdoms in that region uh, while the Portuguese were exploring. And she's a very interesting figure, but that even that first episode of that show was um, it was not good. Um, I could not get through it. I, I basically watched the first episode and I'm like, I, I, I can't I can't continue with this. Um, I, I was not sure, um, but the costumes looked very incorrect. And there were some things that just didn't inspire confidence. Um, and that was actually released back in February of this year. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I don't have plans to watch it. I might do like a review when we get to those subjects, um, or those people. Uh, I might review those at that time. Uh, but Netflix, by and large, they have quite a few historical, uh, quote-unquote documentaries. Uh, most are bad, um, a couple are entertaining, uh, but they're still not very accurate. Uh, I think the best one that they've produced that I've seen was um, Age of Samurai. Uh, that one was decent. Um, the acting, quote-unquote, uh, and the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the dramatization or melodramatization <laughs> Of, uh, of some of the scenes was uh, pretty out there. Um, and there were a couple of just weird mistakes or more, not necessarily mistakes, but more relying on popular myth about the period and the people they were talking about rather than uh, true historical facts, which I understand it's kind of hard to get some of that stuff from that period, especially in English. But they had a lot of Japanese specialists um, but that was by far the most entertaining. It, it was it was definitely the most entertaining Netflix historical documentary I've seen. Uh, but by and large, they're all terrible. And um, while I haven't watched the Cleopatra show, uh, it was not due to casting choices. Although um, we'll discuss the like Cleopatra's ethnic identity and how that's been discussed historically when we get to that period. Um, but, you know, if they had said that this was just a, a drama or a melodrama, um, I don't think the backlash would have been quite as bad for Netflix. Um, but I was well aware even before, you know, the show aired that it was going to be terrible just based on their their work in the first season, season of the show. Um, and I've seen some screenshots from, from, like, the Roman soldiers, like their uniform. Um, there is no historiosity in any of the outfits that they have their people wearing. Uh, and that's true of the Egyptians as well, at least from what I've seen. Maybe that was just some, some random screenshots. But um, the Romans, the leather uh, bracers on their wrists, uh, that's not accurate. Um, their shields were terrible. Like the Roman shields, they were, they were far too small. They were... Um, they look to be like, like, like they were supposed to be metal, maybe. Um, which, of course, Roman shields had like metal, like bosses and sinners, but uh, it was it was bad. Um, the armor was wrong for that period. 
Um, the cloaks were fine. They were they were green, which was a very unusual color, um, but that could have been used by certain Roman uh, soldiers, um, depending on how wealthy they were, depending on their posting. That would not have been entirely out of question. Um, green dyes are actually they're more expensive to make um, because you first have to dye the the clothing yellow and then you have to re-dye it uh, blue so blue dye of course is is a lot more expensive than yellow uh, but um, even yellow is not exactly the cheapest dye and then so you have those two you know those two dyes which in and of themselves are you know not cheap and then you have to do you have to work twice as hard to get it right uh, so green is not a very common Roman color, uh, at least for the rank and file. Uh, that That's kind of out there. But again, if they're guarding you know, a palace or a potentate, that might be something they would wear. Um, the Egyptian clothes, um, I only saw a couple of what I assume were supposed to be uh, Cleopatra's soldiers. Um, they would have been armed very similar to the Greek soldiers of the period um, because all the Alexandrian or Alexander successor states, they generally kept the, the organization mostly the same and the armor and equipment. Uh, they'd be wearing linothorax like linen armor, but uh, yeah, I have no idea what the Egyptians were supposed to be wearing. That's not accurate at all. And uh, that's just... I mean, that's just like the historical stuff I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure that they made mistakes and exaggerated and, yeah, I, it expires no confidence, basically, is what I'm saying. I would not waste my time if I were you. Um, so, yeah, I would just say no. Uh, if, you, if you ask me if I should watch a Netflix show for historical accuracy or entertainment, I'm going to say no because... Historical accuracy, I've already gone over, but even entertainment, they're almost all terrible. Uh, with the exception of Battle for Japan. And that was only okay. I'd rate that like a 7 out of 10. All the others, I would say, are probably 4 out of 10 or lower that I've seen. And I've watched a lot of them that they've had up. Even, um, I hate to say it, but even Graham Hancock's show was far more entertaining than all the historically accurate quote-unquote historical documentaries were because um, Graham's at least entertaining if nothing else so um, yeah uh, but I've kind of dragged this on way too long uh, so I will say good night I've got to render this episode for YouTube and get it ready for upload to our other channels I hope you all enjoy I hope you all will uh, get back to me uh, with any feedback or questions thank you all i have a, i hope you have a good rest of your day and a good very good rest of your week as well thank you goodbye